Hello. Good evening and thank you all for coming. Uh, welcome to Conway Hall. Um, I'm going to do a very quick introduction just to let you know where you are and what's going to happen in the next hour or so. So uh, Conway Hall has been here since 1929. We are a place where people can discuss radical ideas, new ideas in a place that's respectful and tolerant to all people. And that's how we're going to do it tonight. Um, Gina will be on in a moment speaking on uh, her topic. She's going to speak for about 45 minutes or so. We'll take a break and then we'll come back with questions and Gina will be signing books at the end. As I'm sure, I hope you've all seen, Gina's book is available at the back from Newham Books, which I forget the exact prize. They've just won London's top independent bookshop in the galaxy. Yeah, cool. uh, I like an enthusiastic crowd, thank you. Um, that's my shopping list, that's what I've got to say. Um, so, welcome to Conway Hall. Um, we, if you are of a tweeting disposition, the hashtag is genderedbrain. And if you could uh, tweet at Conway Hall as well, we, we'd love to see what you're saying too. Um, book is better at the back, timings. Um, so, we're really, really pleased to have Professor Gina Rippon on today. Um, her book looks fascinating and a really, really important topic and a very timely book. Um, she is a honorary fellow of the British Science Association. She is um, she's greatly involved in, uh, in enabling women to join STEM topics and belongs to organisations such as Science Girl. Um, so now, speaking on her book, The Gendered Brain, and her talk, How the World Makes Us and Our Brains Who We Are, please welcome Professor Gina Rippon. everybody. Um, I will apologise in advance. I've got the most terrible cold, so there'll be a lot of sniffing and coughing. I'll do my best to avoid that. Um, I'm also somebody who's... I'll do my best to time myself. I get fascinated by slides that I've drawn up and um, <laughs> suddenly start telling people other stories, so um, may need to stop me halfway through. So tonight we're going to be talking about about my book, but about the theories behind the book, why I wrote the book, what I think is important for us to understand. Um, and I've called it The Gendered Brain, How Our World Makes Us and Our Brains Who We Are. Because I think the whole story that I'm going to tell this evening is about how a brain gets to be what the world expects um, and why that's a different story and why I think it's a story we should... Um, we should be looking at now. Basically, if I was going to give you the elevator pitch, you could say this is a book about sex differences in the brain. Question, are there any? Very old question, and you'd be surprised to know how far we are from the answer. If there are any, where do they come from? You know, is it biology? Is it society? Is it both? Let's have a look. What do they mean for the brain's owners? You know, if you've got a brain that's different to somebody else's brain, how does that make you different? Okay, so I think that's, as I say, that's the elevator pitch. Let's see if I can get you through that. Um, just briefly to uh, add to the introduction I was kindly given, um, I work at the Aston Brain Centre in Birmingham. We have all the kind of contemporary brain imaging techniques. This is partly um, a defence to show you that I hope you will believe I do know what I'm talking about. Um, because there is, uh, some of the 
uh, reception that the book has got, we'll talk a bit more about it later, um, suggests that I'm kind of a uh, swivel-eyed feminist who doesn't know one end of the brain from the other and um, pay no attention to her. So thank you for coming this evening and paying attention. Um, but we, as I say, we have the standard uh, imaging techniques, as, as you can see, a very old picture of me with a, a very small daughter discovering the perils of being the child of a neuroscientist. But, um, <laughs> And so the data I'm going to be talking about and the data I'm going to be commenting on are, are based on, on these kind of um, images. Um, and the kind of thing that we produce, again, is something I'm, I'm really proud of. We can produce these sort of images. And I think they really tell an amazing story, and they should be telling a much more powerful story about the differences we're interested in than I think we are at the moment. And I think it's time that we actually harness the ability of these kind of images to tell the story, to look at, at, at what's happening. Remember that these kind of images were only available from uh, early 1990s onwards, but a lot of the story about believing men's brains are different from women's brains um, really happened before we could even look at brains. I mean, brains that were damaged or dead or empty skulls that we could fill with bird seed and whey. Those were the sources of evidence about this really entrenched <coughs> belief that men's brains are different from women's brains. So um, some of the conclusions I'll be talking about were drawn before we had any kind of access um, to, to brains in this way. Now, what I do, I, my day job, if you like, I, I research d developmental disorders like autism. Um, originally, I was working in, in a, a psychiatric unit doing research into schizophrenia. But what really interested me was that every person I saw was different from every other person. Um, everybody had a, a label schizophrenic, and yet the people you spoke to, um, the tests you did on them, they, they were all different. So I've always been very interested in individual differences, and that's how I really got to be talking about gender, because in a way that's one of the oldest questions there is about the brain. Is there a difference between male brains and female brains? Now I would say that it's a very old question, but people don't like it if you change the answer. So just as a warning, perhaps in Conway Hall, it's all right that you're about to hear some very subversive uh, discussions. Um, so uh, in the Telegraph, uh, Christina Rodoni, uh, this theory smacks of feminism with an equality fetish. Um, I, I, I love the idea that, you know, believing in equality is some kind of perverse practice. Um, Daily Mail, cut to the chase, grumpy old Harrison. <laughs> for the new scientist, uh, perhaps I shouldn't share it with you, but I will, uh, slightly stereotyping the kind of response you might expect. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this is the kind of, if you challenge those kind of things, this is really to demonstrate to you how entrenched people's belief is in this and, and how upset they are. And the last one from the Daily Mail, um, which I'm, I'm assuming is a spelling mistake and, and um, not reference to my fish-eating habits. Um, now, this is an old question, um, but it is very contemporary. In the last two days, um, we had Alessandro Strumia, the physicist who stood up at CERN uh, last year and said that physics shouldn't be wasting its time educating women to do physics because they didn't have the right kind of brains. Um, in the Times yesterday, in fact, we get proof at last Women and men are born to be different. Proof at last, very interesting phrase. Whenever you get a kind of popular report of a finding about a brain difference, it's always 
the truth at last, proof at last, etc. There seems to be a desperate need for some kind of holy grail which will prove at last that women's brains are different from men's. Um, so we'll have a look and see how we're doing with that um, so far. No, cut to the chase then. Um, this didn't used to be a question. It wasn't, are men's brains different from women's brains? It used to be, men's brains are different from women's brains. Because scientists at that point were kind of working, if you like, from this end of, uh, this is a chain of argument, which in theory goes, you know, our, we've got two types of body, two types of brain, which gives us two sets of skills, which means we have two sorts of roles in society. Scientists early on were working the other way. They were saying men and women are different, women and it has to be said explicitly, were inferior intellectually, evolutionarily even, um, politically, educationally. So we brain scientists need to find an explanation. So we need to look back and find out and prove that women's brains are different. Um, and there was all sorts of weird contortions they went through, uh, weighing brains, finding that on average, and we'll come back to that because that's an important distinction, uh, women's brains were five ounces lighter than men's, so, you know, at last the truth. Um, women were inferior because they had littler brains, um, and size mattered when it came to brains as well. Um, <laughs> but then somebody said, well, actually, sperm whales, elephants, quite a lot of animals have got bigger brains than us, and Generally speaking, we're held to be more intelligent than them, so it might not lie in, in, in size. So then we got phrenology and craniology and weird kind of measurements, always to prove, and actually this is the case, that white men, because it's entangled with the whole race and class issue too, were at the top of the tree, followed possibly by women and children, white women and children, lower classes, uneducated classes, different races, etc. So it, it was very much a a status quo, let's have a look at society as it is or as we'd like it to be and find the biological proof that supports it. So this is really where we were still going um, right up to the end, really the end of the last century. People were still believing in this kind of chain of argument. So what changed? Well, first of all, there was this understanding that we have this kind of belief just to, to demonstrate that there were two different kinds of brains, and they had two different kinds of journeys. So you've got one brain, uh, blue, following the blue track, um, becoming resilient, um, uh, well-endowed uh, with all sorts of cognitive skills, which would make them leaders of men, uh, business leaders, admirals of the fleet, or whatever. Different sort of brain, um, uh, pink, a bit smaller, um, a bit soft and marshmallowy. Um, <laughs> went through a different sort of route and, and landed up being, liking being a princess and being emotionally, etc. So, but the idea was very much that there was, this was a biological determinist model, as we call it. That, that the brain that you had was the brain you were born with, and it was a one-way street. It got a bit bigger, it got, got a bit better connected, but there were different brains which gave you a different place in society. Have we done any better with our wonderful new brain imaging techniques? Well, the key thing that we need to look at is um, people ask the question, are there any differences? So, you know, what are you standing up here talking about? First of all, tell us, are there any differences? Um, and I did actually want to call the book Fifty Shades of Grey Matter. Um, <laughs> publishers didn't have quite the same sense of humour as me. Um, because I think, actually, to some extent, that 
captures really what I'm trying to say, that we believe there are two types of brain, a pink brain female, a blue brain male. But actually, once we start to look more carefully, we realise that every brain is different from every other brain. Um, and so Fifty Shades of Grey Matter actually does capture quite well uh, the story that I believe we should be telling and, and is hopefully unfolding. Um, I put up these just examples of findings that people will talk about because there is still this um, hunt the differences agenda which goes on in neuroscience um, because people want to know our brain's different so they measure different structures, they look at volumes, they look at uh, the thickness of the cortex, etc. And there will be a paper, one recently, from over 5,000 participants where they reported that there were sex differences that there were sex differences in particular structures in the brain, clear well, not clear differences, differences between males and females. And yet, um, in the next month, there was another two papers, meta-analysis looking at all sorts of different studies, saying actually there is no difference between the human amygdala or the human hippocampus. So if you're looking from outside, you might think, well, why can't these neuroscientists get themselves together and actually find the difference we're looking for? Um, could it be that there isn't a difference there? You know, that's a bit of a, um, a perhaps dangerous uh, uh, thought to hold. But neuroscience still pursues this in very, um, very determined ways. There are good reasons. There are gender gaps in the world, gender gaps not just in achievement or, or power, or gender gaps in the type of physical illnesses that females and males have and the type of mental health problems. So we do need to answer these questions, but perhaps not just to stop at saying, is this brain from a male and is this brain from a female? Um, and one of the things they also found was that all the early differences where they proudly claimed, a bit like the five ounces, that they'd found the differences with their wonderful new brain imaging techniques, they found that if you actually corrected for the size of the brain, because there is one difference I should put my hands up to, male brains are, on average, bigger than female brains. But that's because males are, on average, bigger than females, and they have bigger hearts and kidneys and livers, etc. It's a reflection of the size of the body. The other thing to draw attention to is the fact that these differences are um, very tiny. They're overlapping. They're not, you know, everybody's in this group and everybody else is in that group. They're very tiny, and that applies to all of these differences as well. So there may be some, uh, an average difference in the hippocampus for one group of people, but there will be an overlap. So there'll be some women with a bigger amygdala than some men. So these aren't the absolute differences which sometimes we're led to believe exist. Okay, so how have things changed? Are we just stuck here? Why, why did I write the book? What do I think is different that might give us some different answers? So this is going to be a bit of a whistle-stop tour because it's effectively, as you will see, quite a, a fat book. So trying to put it all into 40 minutes is quite a challenge. Okay, so there's three things I think that we need to know about the brain and apologies for people who hate alliteration. Um, our brains are predictive, our brains are plastic and our brains are permeable. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the things we used to think about the brain was its amazingly efficient information processing system ready to receive this information, processing it, and, and helping us uh, acquire the skills that make us human. We now know that the brains are actually much more proactive. I mean, I've, I've put a picture of a sat-nav there, but it's, it's a mixture of a sat-nav and a predictive texture. 
Our brain is out in the world trying to generalise rules and principles to allow us to move through the world quickly, not to have to process all the information that, um, that we uh, are bombarded with all the time. So the, the, the brain is very proactive. It's out in the world. It makes rules. So, of course, if it's out in the world, it's going to pick up the rules that are out there. Um, and that's an important point to remember. With respect to our brain being plastic, we knew that the developing brain in, in young infants um, was very plastic. We could track the formation of connections, the growth of different um, parts of the brain. And so we knew that early on our brain was quite plastic, and that was useful because that's how we acquired skills and learned, etc. But we now know that our brain is plastic throughout our lives and reflects very much um, the experiences that we've had, and that includes... Um, the education we've had, but also quite specific experiences. Plastic studies, don't know if anybody came here in a black cab tonight, but um, we know that uh, the taxi drivers who do the knowledge, which is an extraordinarily intense memory feat, which takes three or four years, six sometimes, um, that will change their brains. We will be able to track it from when they're learning to be a taxi driver. You can see how the hippocampus is part here will change. Interestingly, we've now also been able to look at retired taxi drivers and see that that part of the brain reduces in size. So the brain activation and patterns and structures wax and wane according to the world we're moving around in, much more than we ever realised. The other thing, that the kind of permeable brain, this is a, a, a actually a study of somebody learning to juggle, which is, is neuroscientists think that's a very good way of demonstrating a plastic brain. Um, the other thing is about what we call stereotype threat, the fact that it's not just specific experiences we respond to, it's attitudes that people have, expectations they have of how we're going to perform. And this task was just a very simple task. Three groups of women were given um, a spatial task, and we'll come back to that later, because it's, it's something that women are supposed to be quite poor at, doing this kind of the classic map reading analogy. One group were told, um, they're given a task and said, this is a, a, a spatial task. Women do find it hard, but, you know, give it your best shot. Um, another group were told, uh, this is a spatial, a perceptive, excuse me, a perspective-taking task. Women are very good at it, so have a go at it, and we'll see what we get. And what was interesting was, as you might expect, um, the uh, performance was different, so the ones who were given the positive message did better, and the ones giving negative message did worse, and there was a control group. But what was interesting is that the brains responded differently as well. So the ones who were given the negative message were processing the information while they were doing the task with a different part of their brain in a different way. So we know that the attitudes and expectations that we have of our brains are quite crucial to, um, to how our brains will drive us through the world and help us perform. The second thing we need to understand is that we're wired to be social. We always looked on the brain as this amazing, again, information processing system, the evolution of which gave people language, uh, understanding science, could be creative, could make decisions, uh, could write, um, and, and all the things that we hail as our you know, unique human features. But it now turns out that actually one of the most important aspects of our brain development is the fact that we're social. And this part of the brain here, the neocortex, the newest part of the brain, is directly related to the size of our social world, the social networks that we move around in. So 
It appears that being social is a very important part of our brain's activity. Now, this is when I get to some um, mind-blowing anatomy, which you'll be pleased to hear I won't be going through in detail. Um, but what we're really looking at here is that there are networks in the brain which underpin our social skills. We know quite a lot about language, emotion, etc. But we've also starting to emerge, and this is the kind of work that I've been involved in, that our prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain I pointed to, is not just about being a kind of Sherlock Holmes, coolly logical, able to process information, draw conclusions, etc. It's also something which involves understanding ourselves. Because in order to be social, you need to understand yourself. You need to have a self-identity, a self-image. Um, you need the positive feedback of good self, high self-esteem. You need to understand other people as well. So it's not just you um, moving around the world. It's predicting what other people are going to be, uh, how they're moving, what they might be able to say, respecting conversational rules. So you need to understand the kind of social script that we're all exposed to. The key thing to note is that the kind of pathways here, particularly this pathway here, which is one of my favourite parts of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, um, is that these kind of pathways are activated when people are in real pain. If, you know, cheery neuroscientists actually crank up the electric shock system, you'll get activation in your brain. But if you suffer real pain, if you've broken a leg or something, there are particular pathways in your brain which we know are activated. What we also know is that the pain of something like social rejection or loss of self-esteem also activates those pathways, which demonstrates to us that being social is a really important drive, very, very important to us. And we know that if um, people suffer some kind of rejection, um, even in a, a, an online game where people are passing a ball to each other and you're omitted, people actually feel that quite powerfully. And their brains reflect that as well. And people can be more or less sensitive to rejection. They can be very, very distressed, even become, um, you know, have mental health problems if, if they feel they're being rejected. Um, they're much higher levels of self-criticism and self-silencing. So all of those kind of social behaviours also um, activate particular parts of the brain. And there's a brain part of the brain here we'll come back to, this anterior cingulate again, which I've called something like a cross between traffic light and a, a, a points-changing um, system in the, in the railway. Because it's really a go-no-go -no -go system. It's actually monitoring the information out there, whether or not... Um, there's a kind of positive or a negative aspect for it. Um, I've illustrated it with a chimp, in case you're wondering, because there's a uh, sports uh, psychologist called Steve Peters who talks about the inner chimp, which effectively is that we have emotion centres in the brain which we might be able to harness. Um, but this part here actually is a system which stops us. It says, if you do that, you won't be very popular with your in-group. If you make that kind of choice, you may be um, one of a, a, you know, a, a group where there's nobody else like you, etc. So that part of the brain is very important for this social skills that we have. Okay, so we've got a plastic plagiarising permeable brain. We've got a social brain. The other thing that the 21st century has allowed us to do is actually look at baby brains. Now... Understandably, it's always been difficult to look at baby brains because um, 
sadly, it, we only ever used to be able to look at baby brains if they were born prematurely or they had some kind of illness or, or they had sadly died. But now with the new techniques, these kind of equipment that we have, you can actually look at very tiny babies, newborn babies, and even, uh, I'll come back to that, look at babies before they're born. We can look at the brains of babies before they're born. Um, and again, uh, this image here of small child um, contributing to my research agenda. Um, are babies' brains different? Because, of course, we've talked about adult brains. We've found that we really can't find any differences in adult brains. Maybe that's because they've had different experiences. We'll come back to that. But surely babies, they're born fresh and new into the world. And if there are any differences, this is where we would see them. The story there is much the same as with adult brains. Some labs will say they found a difference. Uh, boys have a bigger volume of brain or a thicker cortex. Another lab will not be able to replicate that. So again, the jury is still out on that. Really interesting study. This was, these data were really interesting because uh, researchers have found a way of looking at the connections within the brain in a baby before it's born. I mean, amazing skills, amazing technology. And for some reason, and we'll come back to that when we're talking about neurosexism, somebody must have said to them, why don't you look and see if there's any sex differences? And it was a, not the kind of data set that really lent itself to that kind of comparison, but they did it, they've published it, and you know the press have gone wild because you know proof at last. Um, so we'll come back to that, but Babies, we know more about babies. The one thing we do know about babies is that we've always thought of them as quite helpless, passive. Um, used to talk about them as reactive to information, subcortical, their brains weren't fully developed. We now know that those babies are tiny social sponges from a very early age. Their little raid, social radar is, is, is quivering from very early on. Babies within the first few days of life will be responding to a face rather than a scrambled image. Um, they will be able to respond differently to their native language. They will recognize their carer's voice. All of these very important social survival skills, we now know that babies', um, br babies brains are capable of those right from the moment of birth and, and possibly even before. So we now know that the world is a very powerful influencer. The 21st century, if it's taught us anything about the brain, is that the brain is not just a kind of vacuum-packed engine which drives us through the world. It interacts with the world, and the world affects it in, in a very powerful way. So it's not, you know, the relationship between the brain and the world is not a one-way one street. It's, it's a two-way process. So what in the world might be affecting our brains? Um, and I'm emphasising that because... All of the examples I'm showing you tonight and that I used in the book are aspects of the world which I know change the brain. So I just haven't randomly selected uh, weird stereotypes in the outside world to say, isn't it weird that we treat our boys and girls differently? All of the things I'm going to talk about do actually change the brain. Right, so let's have a look and see uh, the kind of thing that we might be wanting to look at. Um, now, effectively, what I'm going to be talking about is stereotypes, because stereotypes really sum up, for me, um, the way in which the world treats boys and girls differently. I'm using the example of girls, mainly, because that's a very rich source of data, but we could equally well be looking at boys, we could be looking at ethnic minorities, we could be looking at disadvantaged groups. So anywhere where the world treats people differently, 
surprise, surprise, will probably land up with a different brain. And so I've picked stereotypes as my example, and I'll, I'll go through these briefly to explain why I think they change the brain and why we should be paying attention to them. So first of all, um, this is a sample of a ghastly process I came across, if you've read the book you will know, called Gender Reveal Parties. <laughs> I won't go into it in detail, but effectively, very significant, 20 weeks before a child is born, um, and you're able to find out what sex it is, you have a party and you hand out blue balloons or pink balloons, you send invites saying rifles or ruffles. Um, I could go on. Um, so it's clear that the world is expecting something different from these new arrivals. Um, and similarly, the other, the other uh, um, examples that I'll, I'll now go through. So what I've called this is the gendered waters in which we swim, which was a nice phrase somebody used about trying to understand that the world is, um, doesn't treat the brain, brains differently and we need to understand how they might tr treat the brains differently. So we've had our, um, uh, you know, before the child is even born, we get different expectations of them. Then we get the, it's a boy, it's a girl, pink and blue. Um, then we get different clothes. So baby boy dressed like that, baby girl dressed like that. Slightly worrying baby grow there, I think, given some of the issues uh, that we know are important in girls. Um, and the classic, um, the beautiful girls colouring book, brilliant boys colouring book, and the whole toys issue, which is really important for a reason I'll, I'll, I'll say shortly. Um, my family now despair of taking me to the supermarket because um, <laughs> I spend all my time taking pictures of shower gels. Did you know that you could gender shower gels? Um, anything, it's a, it's a marketing ploy, but it's part of what I think is really significant in the 21st century, that gender bombardment is much more intense than I think it used to be. Um, and I think that's significant for, for our brains. So does this matter? Is this just an eye-rolling snigger at uh, you know, marketing people? Well, I think it does matter because one of the things that happens as a consequence of these choices is that these brains have different experiences. Now, the example I'm using here is this is uh, a mental rotation task. This is a, a kind of task that's used to demonstrate whether... Um, you're good at spatial manipulation, whether or not you're good at knowing one object, um, how one object relates to another, the map reading issue. Um, so the idea is here, so you've got these two figures. If you mentally rotate them, are they the same, except for the, um, the orientation of the object? So you have to kind of mentally manipulate that in your mind and decide yes or no. It's a classic example. It's supposed to be a very good measure of spatial cognition. And it's supposed to be a very robust difference between men and women. People are saying, we, you know, yes, we've done all sorts of other tests, and maybe the verbal thing is disappearing, the math thing is disappearing, but spatial cognition, they hang on to that. But let's have a look at, for example, if you are given um, Lego to play with. Well, the kind of experience you will have will be of interpreting um, these kind of commands. You'll have to mentally rotate. Anybody played Lego? You know, sometimes you have to turn it upside down to put the wheels on. So you have lots of experience of that particular spatial cognition task very early on. And we know that brains will change according to the experience they have of those kind of tasks. Similarly, um, Playing uh, video games, we know, can make a big difference. One of the a recent study done in the States 
was looking at this so-called robust difference between males and females and spatial skills. Big group of um, undergraduates in an American university, big differ a difference between males and females and the spatial tasks they were given. Then they said, well, let's also factor out video game experience. People who had played video games were playing video games, had played video games throughout their lives, etc. Once they did that, the sex difference disappeared. Women who'd had the same amount of video game experience as men were as good at these kind of spatial tasks. So the choices we make will affect the experiences we have. How that then presents is a difference between males and females, which may well be nothing to do with the brain they were born with, but may actually be to do with the experiences they've had. Do we treat girls in the same way? Well, um, there is a, a, a version of Lego which girls can play with called Lego Friends. Um, slightly bigger bits, because girls wouldn't be very good at this kind of manipulation. Uh, the kind of things they can make, um, that's a hairdressing salon. They can make a poodle parlor. Um, you can tell by my tone of voice what I think of Lego Friends. Um, another one I came across, uh, the idea that uh, trying to encourage girls to do science, engineering, all you need is a STEM Barbie. Um, how they dressed her is, is an indication. What can STEM Barbie make? She can make a pink washing machine or a pink, I think that's a jewellery carousel, um, and she can also make a table to cut out dress patterns on. Um, so, yes, I think we treat our boys and girls differently, and yes, I think that will have different um, effects on their brains. So experiences is one thing. What about attitudes? Um, now, some of you may come across a programme I was involved with year before last now. Um, no more boys and girls, can our kids go gender-free? And the idea was they went into a class of seven-year-olds, um, tried to strip out all the kind of gender signalling there was in the classroom. Teacher referred to the girls as sweet pea and the boys as mate, so they got to stop in doing that. Um, there was a blue cupboard for the boys' coats and a pink cupboard for the girls' coats, so they got them to paint them both orange. So they tried to remove all the uh, stereotype signalling uh, messages there were in that classroom. Uh, and in fact, there were quite profound differences in the children at the end, after just six weeks. Not a, you know, more of an anecdote, if you like, than scientific evidence. But what I found quite sad was at the beginning, before they actually carried out all of this stereotype removal effect, was that they measured things like self-esteem, self future expectations in these children. And there was a massive difference between the girls and boys. The seven-year-old girls, very low, much lower in self-esteem. Boys you know, um, much higher in self-esteem, much greater belief in their ability, girls saying, oh, yeah, it'd be good to be a boy because they could get to be president and things like that. So we're looking at an effect on our children uh, when they're seven. And in fact, children, because we're social, we look out at the kind of information that tells us what we should be doing, shouldn't be doing, what group we should belong to. Gender, because it's so strongly signalled, is something that children pick up very young, two or three years old. So these seven-year-olds have been junior gender detectives for more than half their lives. Now, not surprising, they behave differently. Um, and that's, I think that's something that we really need to bear in mind. Um, all sorts of different expectations, a life of gendered expectations. This is just an example of, for example, once those children have played with their toys, they go to school. Um, this was a study done in Israel where you can actually get a very good metric of how teachers mark 
children in class because they all have a, a very um, uh, a, a standard national assessment, which everybody does. So you get scores from the teachers and scores from the national assessment uh, results. And they looked at 8,000 primary school pupils and followed them up over time and looked at um, what their test scores were like in middle school, uh, their high school matriculation scores, their own ratings of their ability, and whether or not they chose science subjects. Um, and the reason I'm talking about this is because uh, in primary school, there was a mismatch between the classroom-based and the national assessments. And the boys were marked higher and the girls were marked lower than they eventually achieved in the national assessment. Um, so in fact, the girls were performing better at that level, but the teachers were marking them lower. The researchers generated a bias score based on that and then factored out as many things as they could. This was an economic study, so they were modeling the data, took out uh, education level of the parents, size of the class, socioeconomic status, all sorts of factors. And the one factor which was most profoundly affecting um, these particular measures was the teacher <coughs> bias score. So what your teacher believed you could do when you were four affected what you actually did when you were a lot older. And I think that's something really important to bear in mind. Um, the other thing I call it is a life of low expectations. Um, I'm very um, active in trying to encourage more girls to do science. I go into secondary schools, science teachers tearing out their hair because 14-year-old girls don't want to do physics because only boys do physics, etc. Um, I call it a life of low expectations because I think there is a history, particularly in science, of an expectation that women will not achieve as well as men. And there is very often an unspoken, but sometimes a spoken assumption that that's because their brains are different. So 2005, the then president of Harvard, you may have heard his speech where he said that the underrepresentation of women in science and engineering could be due to a different availability of aptitude at the high end. Um, Google Memo, uh, individual who circulated all his colleagues, saying that I'm simply stating the distribution of preferences and abilities of men and women may differ in part due to biological causes, and that these differences may explain why we don't have equal representation of women in tech and leadership. He didn't want Google to waste its money on diversity agendas, because there you've got a group of people who were biologically unsuited for the demands of a, a, Google, a Google task. Um, and that's the point in this arguing against what I call essentialism. If you believe that it's biologically determined, biologically determined, alongside that, a bit like the tramline model, is a belief that you can't change it, a belief that actually you shouldn't change it, um, and accusations of social engineering of some of the other um, uh, accolades coming my way since producing the book. Um, the other thing to draw attention to, and apologies to any of my publishers in the audience for talking about other people's books. But um, Angela Saini's written a book looking at the history of how women have always been viewed as inferior in very many branches of science. Um, Caroline Criado Perez's new book, Invisible Women, saying that lots and lots of research, particularly in development of technology or medical intervention or drugs or even things like clearing the snow, has only focused on data from men, on the assumption that 
maybe women were just smaller men and you didn't need to pay much attention to them, or that actually the key things that you needed to address in technological developments or, or health, um, it was more important that you understood what was happening in men. So, for example, um, we didn't know that heart attacks present differently in women than they do in men. And so, you know, a medical profession is trained to look at heart attack symptoms in a particular way, and actually they present differently in women. So this is a way of saying that in the world out there, there is a different expectation of different groups. And as we'll come back to at the end, um, this will actually change their brain. Now, I think I have to say, oh, and then of course, this came up, as I said, at, at the weekend, where the physicist who stood up at CERN um, has now presumably sold his story to the Sunday Times or something. Um, and the data doesn't lie. Interestingly, he uses singular. I think the data don't lie. But um, women don't lie physics, anyway. Um, so it's, this is the 21st century. So it's not a laughing at the old misogynists back in the 19th century. But this message is, is still out there. Okay, so I don't think science, the science that I'm involved with, can uh, get away scot-free. Um, I had a bit of a campaign against what I called neurotrash. One of the problems with those beautiful images I showed you at the beginning were that they were beautiful images. And people believed that they instantly had access to real-time um, goings-on in the brain. At last, we'd been able to make the invisible visible. And lots of um, self-help gurus jumped on the bandwagons and illustrated their books with wonderful brain images with absolutely no axes at all. So it just looked pretty with different blobs. They didn't explain what they meant. Um, so they hijacked neuroscience's agenda and said, for example, they're very keen on, on the idea that males and females' brains are different, at last the truth, and now we can use those to inform these kind of books, um, which I call neurotrash and the granddaddy of them all, why Men don't listen and women can't read maps. But also within science itself, I have to say, uh, Cordelia Fine coined the term neurosexism, which is a continuation of our sort of hunt the difference agenda. People will take, we've now got access to huge data sets, not just small groups of people, your, your friends in the lab or something. We've got access to thousands of brains. People are still interrogating them, but just saying, these are the brains from men, these are the brains from women, let's compare them. Oh, wow, we found differences, even though they're small and overlapping. And so there is this uh, belief that this is a very important difference that we should continue to pursue, even though we know that um, education, experiences, occupation, hobbies, all sorts of things will change those brains as well. You could well factor those into the models you look at. But people don't. So there is neurosexism. And of course, what happens is those kind of papers hit the headlines, continue to support this idea that we are looking at, at genuine differences. Um, OK, so I think that's something that we need to be aware of, that neuroscience itself can contribute to this kind of stereotypical world that our brains are plunged into. So how do we need to rethink this uh, model that we used to believe in, that um, you had a brain that followed a particular pathway, that brain was ge ge genetically determined, bathed in different sorts of hormones, resulted in a different kind of brain, which gave you a different place in society. We now know that there's all sorts of things in the world which will actually change that route in a very particular way. The world is full of stereotypes, different expectations, 
And because we're social, because our world is, our brain is out there in the world saying, so this person is a girl, what do we expect that girl to do? Um, wonderful phrase by Reshma Sojani, the, uh, who founded an organisation called Girls Who Code to try and get more girls into computer science. We raise our boys to be brave and our girls to be perfect. And I think that really sums up a lot of the expectations which are brain-changing. So back to my anatomy and my favourite anterior cingulate. So we've got this brain here, which is the social network. It's out there getting information, but it's getting different feedback. Its, it's emotional centres are, you know, if you're in that sort of social situation, you should be quiet. Um, you should um, really not interfere with what's going on. You might be very self-critical. You might be the sort of person who always blames yourself if you don't get a job. You know, it might be, well, lots of people will have gone for that job. You know, I was, um, it was a, just a, an odd chance. But you might be somebody who's very, very self-critical. Or you might be somebody who's very sensitive to rejection. And the reason I've put those in in particular, because those are all behavioural characteristics, which are very true of women who uh, suffer from depression, uh, self or disorders of, of self-image, eating disorders, etc. So the brain, um, having received this information about how to behave, this is not always good information. Um, but unfortunately, the brain is obliging. You know, the brain is listening to the world. This is how you should behave, and this is what happens. Um, so our traffic lights are constantly stopping this person interacting with the world in a productive way. And I did, um, because Steve Peters called this the inner chimp, I did have a little image which I thought I could call the inner wimp, um, <laughs> which actually characterised this problem. But then I thought, actually, that sounds a bit derogatory. That sounds as though it's somehow the person's fault that they're not outward-going, confident, achieving, etc. Anyway, but the, the picture, I hope, tells the story. So we've got a couple of minutes left, and that's really just to say we've moved on from this tramline model of, of, of the world. What we really should be looking at is the fact that the world is full of chicanes, diversions, um, distractions, etc. The brain sets out in the world, something happens, you get an experience, you don't have an experience, there's a particular attitude, your teacher treats you in a different way, your brain goes off down one pathway, another brain goes off down another, and you keep meeting these chicanes en route. So at the end of it, you do get different brains. But that probably is not just because of some kind of genetic template. It's what the world has done to the brains. Okay, so according to this, I'm just on time. Um, so the choice is yours. Do you <laughs> do you want to stick with this tramline model? And I would say I am not a sex difference denier, which is one of the things that one of the labels I've been has been levelled at me, like climate change denier, with the same presumably the same consequences for human civilization. <laughs> I do believe that there are biological differences in the world, uh, di differences in the brain, but we need to know how strong the influence they are, whether or not they're reversible, whether or not the brain being plastic can help overcome those. So we need to understand those, not just taking those as a given. Or we can have uh, this lovely picture here from a six-year-old. You know, you spend ages putting together really elaborate PowerPoints and some six-year-old child sums up exactly what you want to say. <laughs> Everybody's brain is attached to the world and that has implications for the brain. Um, I did show some of these slides to my students um, and they came up with this wonderful idea, which I would just share with you, particularly if there's any 
booksellers in the audience, it wasn't my idea. Um, they wanted a sticker campaign, so they want to go into bookshops because they contribute in the same way um, to, to the kind of general understanding and attitude and stereotypes, etc. So they were going to have two sorts of stickers that they were going to um, put on the books. So <laughs> that was for that sort, no pressure. Um, but for this one, that was their idea. <laughs> So if, they can, if the Times can have those headlines, then I can have the headlines too. And I'm going to stop there and let you ask some questions.